Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Today we're beginning a series, uh, a new series that we're calling uh, Paul's Letters to Timothy. Um, And listen, our marketing team, because we have one of those, um, just worked so hard on the, on the naming of this series. It took us hours and hours and hours uh, of, of what should we name this, and, and ultimately, like in a, just a moment of, of divine inspiration, uh, a member of our team said, I think we should call this Paul's Letters to Timothy, and that's, that's when we knew it was it. That was, that was what we should call it. Uh, and so that's what we're doing. We, we decided that we wanted to be obedient to the Spirit of God, and so that we're calling it that, and uh, so it's a, it's a great thing. Uh, hey, you know, much of our New Testament is uh, letters that were written uh, to early Christian communities, uh, advising them on, on, on kind of the implications of the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, often addressing maybe issues or problems that they were facing in those local communities. Um, and then there's a scripture, there's a series of, of books, uh, three books actually, um, that are known as the pastoral letters. And uh, this book, First and Second Timothy, or these books, is actually uh, unique because instead of being written to a Christian community, uh, they're actually written to a particular early Christian, a, a believer. Um, and so, and in this case, First and Second Timothy were written by the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy. Uh, now, right at the start, and I, I mentioned that, I've mentioned this before, I want to mention it again, uh, just as we kind of like orient ourselves over the next few weeks to these, to these two letters, First and Second Timothy, uh, that it's really important to realize that when we read the Pauline letters, and that is the majority of your New Testament, uh, when you read the, these letters, uh, we are reading uh, real letters that were sent to real people. Um, we are quite literally reading someone else's mail. Um, it, it would actually be pretty analogous to if you were to, if you were kind of going through some, some boxes uh, that were maybe stuck in an attic or a crawl space somewhere, no one had kind of been there for years, you're going through those and you discover letters that were written from grandpa to grandma uh, while he was away at war, and then you kind of read those letters and you, maybe you don't live in that same time or that same place, you may not see the world in the same way. In other words, you have a different context and yet you have these letters that can kind of provide a window into that world uh, and you, you need to begin to seek to understand and, and unpack and you kind of learn all about grandma and grandpa through these letters. Um, and, and that's what we're reading when we read the New Testament, are these, these letters that are written to real people in real time in real places. And so uh, what has happened then is throughout church history, the body of Christ, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, has found these letters to be helpful to the larger body of Christ. Uh, that there's something about these letters, there's something in these letters uh, that while absolutely deeply rooted in a particular context, in a particular people, at a particular time, are helpful then uh, for the body of Christ for all of time. Uh, And so here we are today, kind of opening our scriptures to 1 Timothy, uh, trying to seek and to understand and to study. So uh, as we're coming to these letters, then I, I would just want to say that we will not do these letters any justice if we read our own time, our own context, and our own kind of perspectives into these letters, right? Uh, in fact, uh, when, when I'm teaching kind of 
biblical exegesis, that's a fancy way of saying understanding Scripture and interpreting it. Uh, when I'm teaching some of those classes uh, among kind of students in Colorado, one of the number one errors we make is we bring all sorts of stuff to the Scriptures, and, and, and we bring our own perspective, our own kind of time, our own selves to the Scriptures, and we read that into the text rather than trying to understand the world of the text and read out of it. Does that make sense? Uh, so, so we don't do these letters any justice if we read our own time, perspective, or context into these letters. So the first step in understanding them is to understand the people to whom it was written and the context in which it was written. Uh, and just kind of doing our best to, to kind of understand who are these people. Um, which is why many of your Bibles have an introduction, right? Uh, before the letter, some of them do or don't. If it's a study Bible, it certainly does. It'll have an introduction to that letter. Read that introduction. Orient yourself to the letter so you kind of understand what's going on. Well, I want to do some of that work for you. And that is First and Second Timothy are, are uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul's letters written to Timothy. And Timothy is one of his young colleagues in ministry. Uh, so what, what often happened was as Paul was traveling widely for ministry, he was planting churches. Uh, and then he was in this town called Lystra. Uh, and he meets this family. He meets this family group. He meets uh, the grandma. Uh, he meets the mom. And he meets the son. Timothy, Timothy's mom, and Timothy's grandma. And, and Paul thinks to himself, you know what? These people are great. <laughs> and particularly, Timothy just shows like this obedience to the gospel, this openness to Jesus. Uh, and so he was so impressed with Timothy and his family uh, that Paul invites Timothy into a mentoring relationship that, so that Timothy could join Paul uh, in this ministry that he's doing where he's going around, he's spreading the good news, he's telling people about Jesus. And so, uh, after several years of mentoring, uh, Timothy began to take on a particular role in Paul's ministry. And that was that Timothy would be the guy, and like, um, you know, some of the older generations say, bless their heart, bless Timothy's heart. Uh, because here's, what's, here's Timothy's job. Timothy's job is to go to different churches whenever challenges or difficulties arose, and he's there to like confront those difficulties or address those. So Paul's like, hey, here's what's going on. I'm going to send Timothy, bless his heart, right? So, so, here, so this is what happens. Uh, and so, so Ephesus was actually one of those churches. Ephesus, where Paul actually wrote a letter to Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. Uh, but also this is deeply tied to this community. This, these letters of 1 Timothy are also tied to the city of Ephesus and the, the community there. Uh, Ephesus had some teachers in their congregation who were teaching some really weird things about Jesus, some really odd things about what it meant to follow Jesus, uh, and so Paul sent Timothy to confront those teachers and to restore order in this rather important church. And so uh, once Timothy arrives in Ephesus, then Paul writes this letter, 1 Timothy, kind of odd things about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and so our passage this morning is actually from the opening of the letter uh, where Paul is commissioning Timothy for this work, okay? So that's kind of the setting. Uh, it's a little brief kind of understanding to orient ourselves. So let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll read the scriptures. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the life that you bring. Um, thank you, God, for your grace, your mercy, um, for your forgiveness. Lord, these things are real things in our lives, and we don't know where we'd be without them. Uh, and so, God, I pray that as we open up, our word, open up your word today, and as we seek to understand, that you would bring us insight for understanding. But more than that, Lord, would you bring us um, kind of a, a heart-level understanding, that, that, that the truths that are found 
uh, in this letter that is deeply rooted in history, and yet by your Spirit speaks to us today, I pray that these truths would land on our hearts, uh, that they would help to form our lives uh, as we seek to follow you and walk in the ways of love. And so God, be with us in these moments together, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to read 1 Timothy, uh, beginning with chapter 1, but I actually want to begin in in, uh, verse 12, and I'll read through 17, uh, and it says this, and again, this is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, I'm grateful to Christ Jesus, oh, and I'm sorry, I meant to mention, Uh, I'm reading today from the NRSV, Uh, so if you are in a Bible app, click to the NRSV, it'll also be up on the screen, you can follow along with me. He says, I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, if you're like me, there's one thing that strikes you immediately. This is all this context about Paul writing to Timothy. This is a letter to a particular person, a real person in history and all of this. And then when you read the letter, particularly the opening of the letter, uh, it's odd because in Paul's commissioning to Timothy, it seems that he can't help but talk about himself. <laughs> if you ever have a beef to pick with Paul, this, is, this could certainly be one of them, right? Here, you're supposed to be writing to Timothy to encourage him, to lift him up, and then you're just going on and on about yourself. Um, but I want to, again, just remind us that there's some funky teaching going on in Ephesus, and some of the congregation then are probably kind of going along with it, right? That it isn't just this isolated incident, this... Uh, teacher said a weird thing or that, but, but this teacher said a weird thing, and now people are starting to go in that direction. People are starting to follow him. And so you have devout, well-meaning people uh, that are teaching and doing kind of fishy things. And, and so when you kind of, again, understand the context, you begin to realize that Paul talks about himself, and I want you to hear this. Paul talks about himself in order to set himself up as a paradigm for the possibilities of grace. Ooh, that's good, that's good. Paul wants to set himself up as a paradigm for the possibilities of grace. In other words, he says, he's starting this letter and he's setting himself up as an example of God's grace and of God's patience. And then Paul confesses. He says, I once was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of great violence. He even goes on to say that he is the foremost of sinners. Another possible way that we can understand this, and and some of our English translations do this, is Paul is essentially saying, I am the chief of all the sinners. If there were a tribe uh, called sinners, I would be in charge, (laughs) essentially is what Paul is saying, right? 
And, and while we might readily accept this, you know, kind of right away, if we take time to pause and really think about this, and again, understand like Paul's life and history and origin story, this would strike us as a bit odd. Because after all, Paul, um, Paul is a highly religious man. In other words, he wasn't as we might have said in my childhood years, part of the rough crowd. <laughs> That's just how we referred to sinners in my house. They're part of the rough crowd, you know? Uh, so, he, so he's the chief. He's the leader of the rough crowd, right? But, but in fact, when you look at his life, you think he's not part of this. He's not part of that so-called rough crowd. And he wasn't a scoundrel who lived a life full of drugs, lies, and illicit relationship. He was, in fact, and I want you to hear this, a highly educated, deeply, deeply religious Jewish man. Paul was, prior, prior to his conversion to Christ, was a highly educated, deeply religious Jewish man. And yet, as he looked back on his formal life, former life, he identifies himself as the chief of all sinners. I mean, how could this be, right? Uh, do you, um, sometimes when we think about our faith journeys, we often kind of look up to people, and, and sometimes we have people and we kind of look at their lives, um, and we look at the highlight reel of their life, right? We look at their social media feeds, maybe, like the only the best parts of what we put in front of people, and we say, you know what, I could never be like that. And we kind of set people up as a, on a pedestal, I would never be as good of a Christian as they are. And this certainly, someone would have said, a Jewish person would have said that about Paul. I will never be as zealous as Paul, who was actually Saul at the time, right? I will never be as zealous as that. He was kind of set up as this, this, this model religious person. But again, putting ourselves in this world, Timothy is working in a church where some people have been led astray by teaching that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is putting himself as an example and says, you know what, I have been there. I've been there. You see, Paul persecuted new followers of Jesus because he felt that survival of the people of Israel as the people of God depended on it. I want you to hear this. Paul persecuted these new followers, this new kind of sect of believers called believers in Jesus Christ. He felt like it was his religious duty and his obedience to God to, to persecute these people because that was a way of preserving Israel as the people of God. In other words, he felt like the, the Israel as a people were under threat by virtue of these new people called Jesus followers. So as, as a devout like religious man, he went about persecuting people. So what Paul is essentially saying is, I have been religiously motivated by fear, and it has led me passionately to work against Jesus. And he says, and oh, by the way, I did all of this ignorantly. I had no idea what I was doing. Do you, do you get the sense? Do you get the picture? He is a deeply religious man doing what he felt like was best for God, but he was doing it out of fear, fear of others, fear of other religions. And now looking back, he calls himself the foremost of all sinners, the chief of sinners. Now this should make us pause. 
And this should cause us to kind of ask questions of our own life. Are we, and are there, or are there any parts of my own faith journey that is primarily motivated by fear? I think that's a fair question and one that we should probably chew on for a while, right? This is not like a question that maybe you ask kind of once, but maybe this is an ongoing question. Are there any parts of my own faith journey that are primarily motivated by fear? Is there any practice of my Christian faith that is more about fear than about following the way of the God who is love and his son who is the prince of peace? You see what I'm saying? Paul was religiously motivated by fear and having come into contact with love incarnate, love made flesh, then steps back and looks at all of his religious zeal, his religious passion, but because it was motivated by fear, looks and says, I was the chief of all sinners. And in fact, for me to do so was blasphemy. Certainly I was a persecutor and I was a violent man. (laughs) But thanks be to God that Paul is a paradigm for the possibilities of grace. Paul is a paradigm for the possibilities of grace, that where he was once motivated by fear, an encounter with the living Christ, love made flesh, he receives God's mercy, and then by God's grace is called and invited to even be an apostle for Jesus Christ. If you live in, in, in this world, you don't understand the, tr- the, the shift unless you live in this world. This, this man becomes the primary champion for the very message and the very group that he used to persecute. The very people that he once used to, to rage in, steal, and bring to jail are the very people whom he then calls brothers and sisters in Christ. And unless you root yourself in this world, it just passes right by you and you never see it, right? And so we've got to place ourselves in this world and begin to understand the radical nature of this. That where he was once religiously motivated by fear, he he comes into contact with love incarnate, receives God's mercy, and then by God's grace is invited to be an apostle. An apostle then, who then sends out Timothy to share the good news and to bring people to Jesus and bring people back to Jesus, right? It's a phenomenal story. And so he has set himself up as a paradigm for the possibilities of grace because where he was once religiously motivated by fear, he doesn't want to replicate that. Only now under the banner of Christ. Do you hear this? He doesn't want to just replicate a fear-based motivation but now under a new banner. He wants to set up something brand new and he wants to participate in what is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he sets out, he sends Timothy to this church in Ephesus in order to straighten out some teaching that, and he wants to center them on Christ-centered teaching. But here's the part I left out before verse 12, and this is what I want you to see. He's got all this stuff about who, whom he once was, but this is all on the basis of this, and that is teaching that is faithful to Jesus will result in love. Love. 
not fear. Teaching that is centered in Jesus will result in love, not fear. Now, how many of you are thinking to yourself, he could have preached this exact same message during love is greater than fear a couple weeks ago. I was thinking that as I was writing it, right? I was thinking, huh, this would have been a better message a couple weeks ago. But here we are in our aptly named series, Paul's Letters to Timothy. So look at verse 3 through 5. He says this. This is the opening, the part I skipped because I wanted the big reveal later. Ah, here it is, the big reveal. Verse 3, I urge you, as I did when I was in, on my way to Macedonia, to remain in Ephesus so that you can instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine. This is great. Not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculation rather than the divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love. But the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart a good conscience, and sincere faith. Whoa. You, you, you see this? He's commissioning Timothy to go and straighten out some teaching, but he wants to make sure that the aim of this instruction is love. Because Paul does not want to simply reproduce a, a religion based on fear only under a new banner or a new name. He wants to make sure that Jesus Christ is love incarnate, and if we understand that, then a religion that bears his name will be motivated by love and not fear. Are you with me? This is good preaching today. Okay, so, so, so here are some things that I think we can learn from Paul's experience in his charge to Timothy. It is all too easy to allow fear to lead us rather than love. And I think that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? It's all too easy to do that. It's also all too easy for the result of faith to be fear instead of love. You with me? There's, there's a difference between those two statements. It's all too easy to allow fear to lead us rather than love, and it's all too easy for the result of our faith to be fear rather than love. But Paul is clear that the aim of Christian faith is in fact love. Here's another thing I think we can learn. Sometimes we can hold on to religious traditions so tightly that it works against God's work in us. Sometimes we can hold on to religious traditions so tightly that it works against God's work in us. In other words, we can literally become blind to the work of the Spirit. And sometimes we can do that in the name of religious zeal and religious passion. Uh, and for Paul, it took kind of this, dr this drastic experience on the road to Damascus to kind of wake him up to that, to that reality, right? And, and so I think the challenge for us is how do we, how do we ma maintain like a sincerity and, and, and an openness to the Spirit of God and a rootedness in faith and, and I can tell you in any number of ways that we're trying to balance that as a community, right? That we're kind of rooted in a tribe, where we draw on the wisdom of historic tradition uh, that's broader than even our own tribe. And, and, like there's, and then we have, and yet we're, we're trying to be nimble to the work of the Spirit. Like we're, and, it's, and it is insanely difficult, uh, but I think the work of the people of God is, is how do we do this, right? How, how do we kind of maintain this, this rootedness while at the same time this openness to the Spirit of God and how he might work? Because sometimes we can hold on so tightly to religious tradition that it works against God's work in us.
Uh, the other thing, and I've mentioned this a number of times before, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but uh, Paul held his positions, he had his convictions prior to coming to, to faith in Christ. He had his religious convictions, but he did not hold them in love. Okay? But he did not hold them in love, and so he looks back later then and says, I think that was sin. Which says to us, our convictions may be right or wrong, but we need to hold them in love. You with me? Hold whatever convictions you have, yes, but hold them in love. Because when he encountered love embodied, that is Christ, he sees it as sinful. And then I want to draw back uh, to our first week um, in our Greater Than series that we just finished, um, in which we said curiosity is greater than certainty, right? And we talked about how in the journey of faith, uh, sometimes certainty can work against us. And um, I, think there, I think that Paul is kind of realizing that as well, uh, that any kind of honest uh, journey of faith is going to lead to questions. There are going to be seasons of doubt in your life. Um, and, and the idea is not to say f- that faith is the enemy of doubt or doubt is, is the enemy of faith, but, but how can these two kind of work together to bring me to greater faith, uh, which is not certainty of doctrine, but is allegiance to Christ. Is, in other words, I, my faith is in Jesus, not my faith is not in what I think about Jesus, right? Or my doctrines about Jesus, those kinds of things. And here's what Paul does. He, I think that he looks at his level of certainty. And there, this is me conjecturing a little bit. Like, I don't know this for sure. It's not in the text. This is me just trying to brainstorm. But I'm wondering if Paul might be in a place where he sees kind of the level of certainty that he once had, and he's ready to call that as sinful as well. That maybe, maybe uh, it shouldn't have taken this kind of great shattering, earth-shattering experience to kind of shake me out of what was happening. All right, so then, verse 16, it it seems that Paul is again kind of setting himself up as an example of God's love and God's mercy and God's patience. And again, at first first appearance, it it would seem to be that this is just, again, all about Paul, right? As if Paul were saying, look at how bad I used to be and how great I am now, Right? It seems like he might be saying that. Uh, But I I want to point out to us that it is not Paul's piety that is the example. It It is Paul that becomes the example of God's patience, grace, and love. You with me? It's not Paul's personal piety, oh, look at how bad I was and now how great I am, but rather it's Paul pointing back or pointing to the great example, which is God's love, grace, and mercy. So Paul becomes a paradigm for the possibilities of grace, but ultimately what happens is this passage is pointing us to the powerful work of God in his grace, in his patience, in his love, in his forgiveness. Are you with me? This is good news, right? All right, so it has been at least three weeks since I have quoted N.T. Wright, so, and I thought, I have got to fix this. So here it is. N.T. Wright says this in his uh, commentary, which, by the way, 
Uh, can I, this is like just a short commercial and I don't normally do this, but uh, N.T. Wright is a great theologian and a lot of his books are pretty academic. Uh, a lot of his are popular level that could be read by anyone, but, but it would be well worth your money to get a commentary set, and some of you are like, whoa. Um, but he wrote a commentary set called, uh, called The New Testament for Everyone. And it's just these short little snippets, uh, and it's phenomenal. And, and so like First, Second Timothy and Titus are all in this little book called The Pastoral Letters. And it's pretty affordable, and there you go. I think you should get it. So, so what, here's what he says. <laughs> As so often, the passage, which seemed to be all about Paul, is in reality all about God and his grace and his love. And that's really where I want to leave you this morning, is with this sort of awareness and this awe of the love and the grace and the forgiveness that is made available to us in Jesus Christ. And then Paul ends with this appropriate doxology, right? Kind of given that he has declared himself a paradigm for the possibilities of grace. And he has said this is an example of God's great love and mercy and forgiveness and direction. Then it is totally appropriate for Paul to end this section of the letter with a doxology. <laughs> this says, to the king of all the ages, Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. <laughs> it's an appropriate doxology in light of the mercy shown, the grace poured out, the encouragement of love. Christ the King is worthy of all glory and honor. The other thing I think that this should say to us is this. Sometimes we exempt ourselves from the grace of God. Sometimes we say, you know, the grace of God works and is fine and is appropriate for someone else. But I have done far too much. Um, I maybe am far too gone where I don't belong and I can't belong. Or we might even say, I'll never be like that. <laughs> and I think this passage reminds us that there is no end to the reach of God's grace. Um, that, there, that there is no person uh, that cannot come into contact with the life-changing love of God. And, and if we got our theology about humanity right, that we are all image bearers of God and uh, people of unsurpassable worth, then, then we can get there, <laughs> right? That we can get there and realize that, hey, there is no person uh, that is out of reach of the grace of God. And, and I want us to know that in our heads. I want us to know it in our hearts. I think that will have an impact on how we see and treat our neighbors. But I also want to personalize it, that if, that if that's you today, and you've kind of exempted yourself from the grace of God, if you've said that you are too far out of the reach, uh, then I want to remind you today that there is no such thing as being too far out of the reach of, of the grace of God. Um, that, that each one of us 
becomes this paradigm for the possibilities of God's grace. Amen? Well, I hope that that is an encouragement to us and, and, and lifts us up. Uh, so let me say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table as we do each week. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, um, this encouraging word from Timothy. And thank you, God, for um, the Apostle Paul, who uh, all those centuries ago wrote this letter. That now, through uh, the leading of your Spirit, through the wisdom of the body of Christ, through the ages, we can begin to look at and explore and understand this world and find that while these words are removed by hundreds, thousands of years, it can find root right in our lives here and now. And so God, I pray that it would speak to us and that your, your grace would be real today, that we would just have such a new awareness of the possibilities of grace. And, and maybe that's, um, maybe that will impact how we see others, how we treat others, maybe it will impact us directly and kind of how we understand and see ourselves in light of you. Um, but whatever, however it might impact us, God, I pray that this word uh, would remain true in our hearts, would, would stick in us, uh, be right at the forefront of our minds uh, so that we might be formed and shaped as your people. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.